to Kohler Mania. We're so excited to have you today. And we are going to jump right back into Revelation. As you recall, in the last episode, we tackled three verses, only three. So we're going to go ahead and get started. I'm Tanya. And I'm Michael. And we are going to jump in and start taking a look at this amazing letter. So we're going to start with verse four, but I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Michael to go ahead and get us started. Yes. And as you recall, we already covered the prologue, the first three verses that describe in expert fashion what is in all of Revelation. And we learned that this is the revelation about Jesus from Jesus himself, which God, the Father, and perhaps when it's using the general term God, meaning all of the Trinity, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, giving Jesus the authority to show his servants what must soon take place through his angel to the servant John about everything that John is seeing. He's writing down what he's seeing and what he's what he's hearing directly coming from Jesus. And then he gives this blessing that blessed is everyone who reads this prophecy and, and those who hear it and take it to heart, all that is written in it, because the time is near. And so that finishes up the prologue. And then we get into the greeting of the letter, which I as typical letters do, they first say who it's from. I love that. I think that's a logical way to have a letter is first tell us who it's from. You don't have to flip to the end to see who it's from. You know, right off the bat, John says it's from him in verse four to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And as you recall, we said, you know, this was present day Asia Minor, present day Turkey, where John was a, a leader in the church of Ephesus which was a big church there, and there were six other smaller churches surrounding that within 50 miles of each other that, you know, John had a lot of influence in the church as a whole, but this was like his core group where he was from. They would have known him personally. If you think of like with Jesus, Jesus taught so many people and so many people knew who Jesus was, but he also had his inner circle of 12 disciples that he knew very personally, and even more so, he had a very smaller inner close group of Peter, James, and John who were really close to Jesus and got to spend even more time with him and close time and and uh, go to places that he didn't allow other uh, disciples to go and to like to praying with him before uh, he died in the, in the um, garden of Gethsemane. Um, and so John is, is writing back to his inner circle to the, to the seven to the seven churches, he may have written letters back and forth to them. The Romans did allow visitors and and letters to be written. If you were in custody in some way, you have Paul's prison letters of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. You know, people could visit and you'd give them a letter that they could take take back to to whomever. And so the same thing could be happening here. And he's giving a letter to go back to to the seven churches that he has the the most to the the most uh, influence. And he then gives a greeting, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So the first thing he bestows is a blessing of grace and peace to you, to the seven churches, grace, God's undeserved favor, that peace that surpasses all understanding from Three persons. Who are these three persons? 
<laughs> there's been a lot of discussion yeah. on that because John Wax is a little poetic here and so leaves room for some reasonable minds to differ on who these three persons might be. But the fact that there are three persons and one of them is Jesus Christ, who do we think logically those three persons probably most likely might be? I think the church answer would be <laughs> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. But what's interesting is John didn't come out and say, right. you know, grace and peace to you from fa- the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is almost like typical Paul. I mean, it almost makes me think of Paul. Paul had a, opened his letters a lot with grace and peace to you from God our Father and from mm-hmm. our Lord and Savior Jesus yeah. Christ. And so we have, that's a common greeting among the Christians, grace and peace to you. But then he uses some phrases here that are not necessarily so common. So the first one is from him who is and who was and who is to come. Most scholars, the majority view would say this is from the Trinity. So that that first person would be from God the Father. And it, it seems to be an echo of the, the tetragrammaton, that, that big theological term meaning Yahweh. Remember before in old Hebrew, they didn't have vowels. So Yahweh was just spelled Y-H-W-H. And because of the third commandment, not to use Yahweh's name in vain, it fell out of use. And so nobody really knew how to pronounce it because everybody had stopped pronouncing it. So there's some discussion on how this word was actually pronounced and even exactly what it means. But most scholars agree that Yahweh is some form of the to be verb and either means I am, which is what most people believe it means, or it could mean I I was or I will be, you know, any form of those to be verbs. And again, you know, I like the thinking of if it could mean any one of those three, maybe God meant it to mean all of that. You know, how do, when Moses asked God, I need your name, how do how, I go back to these people? Who do I say sent me? What is your name? How do you name, you know, names were very important yeah. in, he, in the Hebrew culture. It, it was to envelop who you are. How do you have a name that envelops the God of the universe who is omniscient, all powerful, all present. And, and God said, well, the name that he, that he gives is I am, or I am, I will be, and I was. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you take that full meaning of the, I am, I will be, and I was, you know, this is a, a title that becomes for the father from him who is and who was and who is to come. In other words, Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So this is grace and peace to you from Yahweh. And then from the seven spirits before his throne. Now this this causes a lot of consternation <laughs> among the scholars and others because if this is the Holy Spirit, that is kind of an interesting way to refer to the Holy Spirit, to refer to him as the seven spirits. How could that be the Holy Spirit? Those that hold to that view, they reference Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1, where it uh, talks about a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. This is talking about the Messiah. Where will the Messiah come? It'll come from Jesse, which is, who was the father of David. In other words, from the line of, of David is where, Judah, yeah. right, is where the Messiah will come from. From his roots, a branch will bear his fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on this Messiah goes on to say the spirit of the Lord, who is the spirit of wisdom 
and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge, of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This has been known as the sevenfold spirit, that the holy one other way of referring to the Holy Spirit is the sevenfold spirit because of these seven aspects of the Holy Spirit that will rest on the Messiah. And so many believe that this is the seven spirits is referring to this sevenfold spirit that will rest on the Messiah. Jesus, which the book of Revelation is focusing on Jesus as the Messiah returning in his second coming to fulfill the other parts of the messianic prophecy. And is that what John is doing here? Others think that maybe the seven spirits could possibly be referring to the seven angels of the seven churches, which we will discuss in the shortly that is coming very quickly in chapter two following. And so, you know, it could possibly refer to that. So there's some scholars that think that. Do you, do you fall on a particular viewpoint on what you might well think at this point? I mean, just kind of going through it. It's funny because you keep saying the seven spirit, and then we read the word, it's seven spirits. And then going back and looking at all these spirits, I'm almost getting six from here. But then when I see the spirit of the Lord and then the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, fear, that all comes out to be seven total spirits. And it's to me, it's amazing because we know that Jesus is filled with wisdom and understanding, and we know that he is counsel, that he is might. I forgot, I left that one out, might. And the spirit of knowledge and fear, the fear of the Lord. And so as I'm referring back to Isaiah 11, it has to be those, those, those character traits of the Holy Spirit, of the spirit that is of Jesus. Right. And th there are seven things listed. The, the first one that, that they include is the spirit of the Lord. So you have the spirit of the Lord, mm -hmm. the spirit of wisdom, yes. the spirit of understanding, yes. the spirit of counsel, the spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge. And the and and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. That's that's seven. So that's you know, that's where you get the title the sevenfold spirit. There's seven spirits listed here, which is all referring to the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. The Spirit of the Lord is of course the Holy Spirit. And so to me, it, it, it seems very logical to think of this as a, a blessing of grace and peace from the Trinity. Mm -hmm. from Yahweh, who was and is and is to come, from the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold spirit, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I kind of fall in, in that in that category. I, I can see the argument where oh, it seems it, it's definitely a strange way necessarily to refer to the Holy Spirit as seven spirits, and certainly because these seven spirits are before his throne, makes it sound like seven separate spirits that are before the throne. And maybe that's referring to something else, perhaps like the, the angel, the seven angels of, of the seven churches. But it gives Jesus Christ the title, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know, that's an interesting phrase there, the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean exactly? I mean, we have Lazarus who, who rose from the dead, Jairus's daughter, Jesus rose her from the dead. Elisha rose a, a boy from from the dead. There's others that have been risen from the dead before Jesus. How how is he the firstborn from 
the dead. You have any thoughts on on that one? What does that phrase mean? How is he the firstborn from the dead? Yeah, the firstborn from the dead. I'm kind of thinking as I'm studying a little bit further, I've been studying about the word dead. And, you know, you get the first death and the second death. And I'm sure we'll cover that as we move on through this. But kind of thinking the first one that has defeated death, the firstborn defeating death completely, death in Hades. That is where I'm coming from. No one else has done that but Jesus. You know, I, I think that's a great answer. I think that's that's right on on point. I, th- I think that's the best answer I've heard. Actually, I think that's that's getting right right at it. I mean, other answers that I've I've heard people give is you know he's he's the only one who is who was raised from the dead under his own power. You know, all these other that's the difference between a lot of the miracles in the Bible and the miracles that Jesus did. You know, Elisha and Elijah did some powerful. Uh, powerful miracles. How is he, how are they any different from Jesus to show that Jesus was the son of God? Because how it's different is Jesus did things and claimed to do things under his own power. Whereas Elisha and others did things through the power of God. Elisha didn't raise anybody from the dead. God did it through Elisha. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm over here like, wow, I passed the test (laughs) 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 because like, seriously, like studying as you get into the chapters of like later in the chapters of 19 and 20, there's a lot about the first death and the second death. And there is no one that has been the firstborn that has actually defeated death. So that is my perspective. Yeah. And he's the only one that has died and never had to die again. (laughs) You know, all the other ones that were raised from the dead, they were going to die a second time. That was the kind of the bummer about those, those miracles is they, they died once and they were raised from that. And it's like, well, you know, they're going to have to go through death one more time. You know, Jesus didn't, didn't have to go through that. Uh, Plus the, the um, firstborn could, it was also used as a phrase to mean primary and importance mm-hmm. because Jesus was also called the, the firstborn of all creation. Mm-hmm. And that has led some to say, well, does that mean Jesus was a created being because he was the firstborn of all, uh, like all other creation? And no, it, you know, that's getting at the sense of a firstborn as being primary in importance, whereas the Trinity, they're all equal. And so, but Jesus was said to be the firstborn primary of importance of anything, all that was created, everything else besides God has been created. And Jesus is primary in importance above all of them uh, versus being equal to the Trinity. So those are kind of the aspects of the firstborn, meaning primary importance the fact that he Jesus died and he doesn't have to die again. He he also was the only one to be raised under his own power, whereas everybody else that that is re- resurrected is resurrected through the power of God. But man, I love your answer as as really homing in on the fact that Jesus defeated death, yeah. and that is why he is the first and primary of all importance, firstborn from the dead, because he defeated death. Yes. And certainly the the rest of what Revelation here in the next few verses kind of brings that out as John gives a shout out to Jesus right right, uh, after this and says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power 
forever and ever. Amen. I think John at this point is just being overwhelmed by Jesus at this point and being that firstborn from the dead, defeating death. And he is just giving this, this shout out of love to Jesus, to him who loves and I just, I just love the fact that one of the titles for John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Mm-hmm. He, he called himself that. And he's, he's referring to that when he says to him who loves us more than anything, freed us from our sins by his blood to him be all glory and power forever and ever. I know we both have two different versions that we we kind of debated this like a while ago, but we have two different versions. And I love the way my version says, and it's probably similar, but to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. I, I just, it's just freedom to know that, like you said, you know, he's loved us. He freed us. He saved me from the depths of Hades. And I'm like, man, Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and that you died for us so we can have that freedom and that relationship with you, to walk with you and to change our lives, to give our lives up to you so that you can be king of our heart, king of our life. And that right there, by his blood, by his blood, it's like the covenant. I'm thinking it's just such an amazing picture because it could take us right back to Genesis as we had studied Genesis for uh, 15 months with our small group. There's life in the blood and God, Jesus died for us by his blood that covers us. It's just amazing. Yes. And I love the fact that he has made us to be a kingdom and Mm -hmm. priests. Yeah. What does that mean that he has made us to be a kingdom and priests. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, so this is some deep theology I know, here, it, right? It, it I is, mean, there's a lot to talk is. about in this opening chapter of Revelation. It's like, man, John, John. I mean, if you just read the book of John, what a theologian! I mean, he just has a, such a high, what they call a high Christology, yeah. to prove that Jesus is God, Yahweh Himself, and. There's just so much theology in the book of John, and he doesn't let up in the book of Revelation. And just in this opening chapter where he's just laying the foundation for the whole book, there is just a lot of theology to talk about here. And that's a difficult question in and of itself. And we can just gloss right over this if we read it over quickly. But if we Mm -hmm. pause to think about it, what exactly is a kingdom and a priest that he has made us as believers? He's talking to us mere humans. Yeah, And he talks to us as brothers and as friends. And that just mm-hmm. astounds me that, uh, and to no end to ever think about that, that the God of universe who created all things is all powerful and all knowing relates to us as brothers and friends, Yeah, as, as well as sovereign God, both, but also in the sense as friends and brothers. And right here, he is calling us a kingdom and priests. I'll take a shot at this. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to John 14, 1, I believe, where he says that he is preparing a place for us. He's preparing a kingdom, and we are to partake in that kingdom. Those who believe, those who are called sons and daughters of the living God, the Most High, and he's made us a kingdom. When we die from this place, those who believe in Jesus Christ, we have a place as Jesus says, I am preparing a place for you, but we are priests because 
Peter talks about this as well, that we are the holy priesthood. Yeah, um, let me just go ahead and quote that then. First Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were a people, but now you are the people of God. You are yeah. his, he, Jesus came to usher in his kingdom. The kingdom lives within us. We are a chosen people. Mm-hmm. We are a royal priesthood. Before in the old covenant, everything had to go through the priest. You had only the priest mm-hmm. had, had to do all these special ceremonies and sacrifices to cleanse them, themselves. And only the high priest could talk to God through the Holy of Holies. When Jesus died, that curtain dividing God and us was cut in two. We don't have to go through priests. We are all priests. We can all come before yeah. the throne with boldness and talk to God personally without going through priests. We are all now priests, the priesthood of all believers. You hear that phrase. We are a kingdom ourselves. We are a chosen people, a holy nation, and we can come before the throne, the sovereign God himself boldly in prayer because we are cons- we are all considered priests. Thinking about priests to, like you said, we're all considered priests. Those who have heard like the watchman on the wall, we have heard. Now it is time for us to speak and to call out if a brother and sister is sinning. Like we are, we have been given a great responsibility here to carry out the word of God and to help lead our brothers and sisters in the right direction if they're sin or ready for, like Peter says, for the answer that's the hope that's within us. Be ready for that apologia. And so I'm just excited because God calls us, like you said, a kingdom and a priest. And being a priest is is a responsibility. I think about the priest with like, you know, a hat, big, you know, tall hat, whatever, with this little outfit. (laughs) But we are called priests. And that's a great responsibility. Yes, you know, and and Jesus had a lot to talk about the kingdom and ushering the the kingdom, literal kingdom of the Messiah here on earth, as well as the kingdom being within us and us as individuals being uh, as as priests. And so, right here, we kind of have a, a break in in the dialogue for John to give a doxology, an opening prophecy, a glimpse into the prophecies that are to come, and say, look. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And it's interesting in verse 7, all of a sudden, John basically interrupts himself and has kind of a, a doxology and says, like, look, behold, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And then there's a quote by Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Wow. So there's kind of a a break and and a doxology there. And there's a a lot of important theology just in that and of itself. Yes. And uh, I think we're going to have to pick up there in the next podcast. Yes. We've got through all of six, <laughs> six verses. verses. There's there's just a lot of theology in this very concise but huge in amount of what is being said in this first chapter yeah. laying the foundation of the whole book of Revelation in a very concise, brilliant 
fashion, just giving some really in-depth theology that only John can do yeah. in, in typical John fashion in, in the way that that he did in his his uh, other writings, especially the Gospel of John that just had such a high Christology, meaning you're just showing how Jesus is, is God himself. I mean, I, I just love the fact Jesus is such a big and central figure, of course, of our faith. So you couldn't just have one book about him. You had to have at least four. And, and just seeing the different angles that the different writers had, Matthew was looking more at the Messianic, Davidic king, speaking to a Jewish audience to show how Jesus was the Messiah and the Davidic king. Luke was kind of the opposite and speaking more to the Greeks and giving a very sophisticated, logical account of, of Jesus's life, speaking to a Greek audience. And Mark was a, a more quick motivational uh, sermon, a kind of call to action to be able to persevere through suffering, looking a lot at Jesus's life as a suffering servant. But John, his gospel was focused on, let me just show you how Jesus is Yahweh himself. He is mm. God himself. Yeah. And that's what theologians call a high Christology. And if that's not revelation, I don't know what is, just a really high Christology showing how Jesus was Yahweh himself. And the verses that we are going to get into really start to bring that out. There's some really deep stuff that I don't want anybody to miss, just showing in typical John fashion how Jesus yeah. is Yahweh. Yeah. Uh, he is God. He's not just mere man. He's not another uh, human. He, wa he was man because he had to be able to die for our sins, but he was also fully God. And that's what John really focuses on in his gospel and focuses on, especially in Revelation, as he is revealing to us more about Jesus Christ that that very opening phrase speaks of. What, what, is this, what an awesome chapter, yeah. brilliantly written inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, given to him by Jesus that just lays the foundation of the whole book that we are to take to heart and to change our lives. Yes. And if we do Amen. so, we will be blessed. Yes. Amen. Amen. This was amazing because the word of God is amazing. And even though we went through the six verses, it's so rich. It is so rich. And so next time we'll pick up in verse seven, dig deep again. As we end our podcast, I hope listeners that you are blessed by this, that the Lord would speak to you in a different way as you have looked at these first six verses in Revelation and just, just pray that the Lord will open your eyes even more as we continue in the study of Revelation. Thank you. And until next time. Next time, God bless with the blessings promised in Revelation. Revelation.